Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to episode 216 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the amazing Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. What's happening, Dan? Well, as as people are listening to this, I'm presumably in Austin uh, for the ATX TV Festival. Uh, people should definitely presumably come to the panels I'm moderating on Saturday and Sunday. We might be recording this earlier, so who knows? Maybe there'll be weather and I won't make it. But uh, but let's Don't pretend I'm. I, well, I, okay, fine. Let's not say that. Anyway, so then I'm totally in Austin as I, as we're recording this, and you should definitely come uh, see the panels I'm moderating on, on Saturday and Sunday, which are definitely tomorrow and the day after. Yeah, that's how this goes. Anyway. Yes. Anyway, well, what a week it's been in TV. We've had a number of series and season finales of so many important shows. We're going to do something a little bit different in this week in that it, we're going to have a wide-ranging discussion about... Ted Lasso, Succession, Barry, and Yellow Jackets, with apologies to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We just couldn't get to that. So consider this your spoiler warning, because the first four topics this week, all filled with spoilers, and also filled with friend of the five, Alan Sepinwall. So get your Firewall and Iceberg fans, this episode is for you. The, the general shape of things, and this will be more specific in the outline, is going to be that we are going to talk about first Ted Lasso, then Succession, then Barry, finally Yellow Jackets. And then after that, we have a very special interview with another friend of the five, Maureen Ryan, who joins us to talk about her forthcoming book, Burn It Down. So it is a very friend of the five E installment. Yeah, so no Critics Corner this week. And if you're going to miss Critics Corner, well, I highly recommend that you go subscribe to Dan's weekly newsletter, Now See This, which you've probably heard us plug a time or 10 on the show before. Otherwise, you'll never know what I think about TNT's Lazarus Project. So uh, so you better subscribe to that there newsletter, y'all. <laughs> With all that out of the way, we're going to jump right into it. So consider this your last spoiler warning. Number one. Up next this week, we are thrilled to be joined by Rolling Stone chief TV critic and friend of the five, Alan Sepinwall, for a season in review. We're going to call it a series in review, maybe, for this segment. Talking Ted Lasso up first. Guys, where do we want to begin? First of all, welcome, Alan. Thanks again for joining us for not one, not two, but three segments this week. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I as a friend of the five, uh, you know, who does not have a higher title than that, I, I feel like recently, didn't you guys talk about different friendship tiers? We, we've decided that really and truly calling everybody a friend of the five seems a little bit like overkill. I mean, some people are also close collaborators of the five. One or two people are former guest hosts of the five. Some people are simply former guests of the five. But come on, are we really going to think they're friends? But you are truly a friend of the five, Alan. Family of the five? I mean, I don't BFF know. of the five. Yeah, the five families. Is that a good name that we can uh, that we can trademark? I think we should refer to the five families. It sounds like a Game of Thrones spinoff. It yes. sounds like it sounds like the mob. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's start with Ted Lasso, guys. Obviously, you know, I'm going to say this probably for every segment, but uh, I am not a critic. So there's your first what? shot. Of wait, the wait. Episode. Why am I first hearing of this now? I know, right? Uh, but I will say, you know, look, I know this third season of of Ted Lasso definitely had its problems, but I really love the finale. I cried multiple times. It just I had the it gave me a big, big, big case of the feels. And I have no problems with it if this is, in fact, a series finale. And, and from a reporter standpoint, I checked in with Apple and Warner Brothers today. No comment from either about anything. So. We can talk about the quality of, of the show, and I defer to you guys for that. But from a press standpoint, why not promote this as a series ender? Because that's honestly what it felt like. And if you're going to do spinoffs, which, you know, at least one feels very, very natural to me, just you call it a series finale. And then you'll do a spinoff with a different title that, that takes Ted Lasso's name out of it. I mean, that's kind of where I feel like we have to start, right? Can either of you remember a situation like this before where a season ended and we did not know that the show was ending, even though it seemed really, really obvious that the show was ending? Well, it's I mean, broadcast, right? Yeah, it happens all the time. But that's a different model. It happens all the time with a different model. I don't think we've ever seen it in quite this form wherein it's 100% clear that if the people involved wanted to do another season, uh, Leslie is currently, you can't see her listeners, holding up a Ted Lasso mug. So, you know, <laughs> but but like this is a situation where if Jason Sudeikis and Bill Lawrence and the whole team had said to Apple at any given point, here is exactly the thing that we want to do. Will you give us a chance to do either another season or a spinoff or whatever? Apple would have said, of course, absolutely, whatever you want. And presumably these conversations have happened. That is the thing that is that is head scratching for me is presumably Apple knows exactly what and is Warner or Brothers, isn't Because coming. Warner Brothers has contracts with all of the cast. They are the lead studio on the show. And as I reported, I got what was this two years ago? When they gave this, when when the the cast and and the writers all went in for pay raises, which is commonplace for a show that has clearly broken through, such as Ted Lasso, such as This Is Us, such as Stranger Things, all of which have had similar financial renegotiations for contracts, that not only did their salaries include significant pay bumps for season three, but it also offered more money should the show go on for additional seasons or spinoffs. So... This is a highly lucrative project for everyone involved in, and it's obviously very successful. It's a platform-defining show for Apple. It's a big off-net sale for Warner Brothers. Why not keep it going? But also, like, they're, they're, from a press standpoint, it, you know, it, it does feel like a little underwhelming. You know, this is a, a great episode of television from my non-critic lens <laughs> for a show that is wildly, wildly loved and respected. And it kind of was just kind of setting off. It's like, well, we don't know, but it's the end. You know, Jason has said this is the end for 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 the Ted character, but it's also like, 
what what I might compare it to kind of or what I kind of expected was the way that the second season of The Mandalorian ended with the story will continue with the book of Boba Fett. And it was sort of like, OK, here's what the spinoff is. Maybe there'll be another season of The Mandalorian. Also, at that point, we didn't know that Book of Boba Fett was just going to become season three of The Mandalorian about halfway through. But like I truly expected the saga of the Richmond Greyhounds will continue with the book of Roy Kent to be kind of the the capper on it. And the fact that it, you know, it obviously said, OK, here are, as as you say, here are two or three obvious spinoffs, but here are like seven spinoffs that we could get. But I mean, the didn't. women's version of Ted Lasso, sign me up, sign sure. me up. Also, the one I want is I want uh, Rebecca traveling the world, uh, singing karaoke in different cities around the world. Just just nothing but Rebecca in different <laughs> international locations, singing karaoke on a weekly basis. I, I would watch that. But and, and in yeah. every place she stays at a hotel and Keely is doing some sort of promotional video for that city that she recorded 10 years ago. 100 percent. Where the women's soccer team version of Richmond is currently playing. Sure. Yes. But yeah, so so no, it. The, the strategy has been so confusing and to the best of my ability to fathom it, so pointless. Like, I just cannot tell you what the advantage that they've gained has been. I mean, the only thing, and again, I know nothing. None of us know anything. They've all been radio silent. And obviously Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt and a bunch of other people who work on the show are on a picket line right now. So they're not doing any press. The best I can figure it is, as Leslie says, this is a super lucrative show for the studio and for Apple, and they want by any means to keep it going. And they are basically trying to wait out Sudeikis because they assume Sudeikis doesn't want to come back. And so rather than announce spinoffs or anything, they're just sort of, you know, keeping the clock going. Yeah, but I mean, he's also said that this is a they, they pitched this show and this is a show that. They tried to sell to many outlets and multiple people passed on this because who's, you know, it's a weird pitch when you think of it. It's like, here's this NBC sports thing with Jason Sudeikis being goofy. There's a TV show in that, really? Like, that's not your typical IP that's going to be make for a successful show, right? So everyone passes on this, but then Apple buys it and they're like, well, this is kind of, you know, the underdog show, but they pitched this with a three season arc, right? They have said since day one, this is a show for three seasons. And it did tell a complete story, even if for the third season, so much of that story was seems like it was told off screen, which I'll let you guys debate oh, about yeah. on. But <laughs> but at the same at the same time, like you can say, like, we want the show to continue. And, and Jason at the same time has said his kid lives in the U.S. and and this show films in the U.K. And when you're away from your kid for a long time, as we saw in Ted Lasso, that that rings true. You, it's hard to be away from your family. They right, even if it's, a, you know, like they pitched it as a three-season arc about a uh, about a Greek restaurant hostess named Jade, and the entire <laughs> and the entire hook of the thing was you won't even meet her in the first season. You won't know it was supposed to be her story. Then the second season she'll just pop up in the background. Then the third season she'll have no personality, but she'll have a love story. Then she'll have one episode where she has a personality, and then in the finale she'll be in the background of one shot, and that's the arc of Jade. Is that I'm sorry, who's, we... who's Jade? <laughs> she got she got Nate fired. That's who Jade is. She's the woman who got Nate fired. But uh, but yes, I I don't know. None of this is none of this is us talking about Ted Lasso. Though I guess obliquely now we've begun to talk about some of the very very frustrating oh, things boy. about the final season, which 
I think I'm going to have probably liked more than you do, but it 100% depends on which version of my glasses I'm wearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that the finale was the best episode of the season. I still had a whole bunch of problems with it. And I mean, Leslie, you brought up one of the big points right there, even though you are not a critic, which is how many of the most important parts of the season, not just plot, but character-wise, happened between scenes, between episodes, even, you know, like, Nate quits West Ham in between episodes. We don't see why. I mean, we can kind of infer, although it doesn't really make any sense to the character, that just this one thing that Rupert did was enough to make him want to quit. Um, you know, you don't see the players on Richmond voting unanimously to bring Nate back when earlier in the season they were basically homicidal over that video of him destroying the Believe sign. Like, how is that not a scene where, like, one by, like, 12 Angry Men style, one by one, Colin convinces everybody else to vote Nate back? I don't know how you do that, and I don't know how you do, like, you don't show the scene where Ted tells either the players or Coach Beard, okay, I'm leaving. Like, that's just, that's huge stuff. Excuse me, they had a lot of things that those players had to handle instead. Over the course of the season, they solved homophobia in sports, which was a tremendous relief, and we should all feel very good about that. They solved homophobia, they solved racism, they, they, yes, had, they, a pill, they had a pillow fight. They they did. There, there were so many things that they had to do. And that that to me was kind of the primary problem for me, at least in the season, was that for some reason they decided that the show had to be an issue of the week show, which I don't think it was ever designed to be. I don't think that that there was ever supposed to be any supposition that these were the people who were capable of solving racism, homophobia and every problem in the world in their little locker room. And yet, for some reason, that dominated the season. And even then, it just nothing that was there, at least if nothing else, Colin got to kiss his boyfriend in the finale, which was which was very good, made me very happy. It did fill me. It, it gave me the feels, all of that. But like, I'm still annoyed by the the uh, there's a hate crime on Sam's restaurant. The players come and fix it up and it's never mentioned again. It was just a one episode hate crime. Let's move on with our lives. I just don't know what they think they accomplished with that. It's just there's so much sloppiness, so many ideas introduced and then forgotten or introduced to no reason. Remember Shandy? Remember uh, Keeley's friend Shandy, who worked at the PR firm and was Can completely incompetent? Can I forget incompetent? her faster, please? <laughs> there was just so much of that. And obviously, like so much of Nate's arc was told from the perspective of the thing that he needs to fix him is the love of a good woman who has no personality whatsoever. And so... That's what, oh, and his father had to tell him he was a genius and he had to play the violin. And that is, those are the three steps we need to take in order to justify Nate returning to the team. And, and yet was, I have to say that, that Nate finding love was somehow the season's least creepy romantic storyline. Like, I thought that everything involving Roy Kent and Keeley this season, and I loved those two last season. I thought everything yeah. about them this season was was creepy when they were in romantic terms. On the other hand, when they were having a friendship, I thought all the stuff last week with Roy and uh, with Roy and Jamie and Keeley, I thought that was wonderful and adorable. It, and it and it felt like it was building up to an E2 Mama Tambien style throuble and and they did not <laughs> want to go there. And that is a a huge disappointment. Cowards, let them all and, have and, sex. <laughs> and also really they 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 just left it as in she picks neither one of them. Well, that well, at least gave her that gave her agency, which she hadn't had in anything else. So I'm okay with that a hundred percent. Like by what? all means. But listen, I want my happy endings or in my in my rom coms. But Leslie, this uh, two things. We'll get to the second thing in a second. But 
it goes back to this whole idea of, is this the finale or not? Because the problem with them leaving us in the dark is you can't necessarily look at her kicking the both of those idiots out as her taking agency, her pulling a Kelly Taylor and saying, I choose me. You have to maybe question, are they doing that so that there's still some conflict to go when they do AFC Richmond RFD or whatever they wind up calling the continuation show, if there is such a thing? So, I mean, that's that's part of the problem. Uh, rom-com endings, it's weird because I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. There's a, a, I don't know how sizable it is, but there's a very vocal part of the Ted Lasso fan base who convinced themselves that Ted and Rebecca were endgame. And they are so angry right now. And especially because the finale opens with this scene sort of it it initially yeah. implying that they slept together. And then it's set up for this joke about Coach Beard and a thong. So they're real mad right now. Okay. And that's, and that's the problem. Like, okay, never for a second did I think that that made any sense as a relationship. And it no, always perplexed me that people thought that it did. But leaving that aside completely, the fact that I didn't buy it, oh, did they decide to troll those fans in the finale multiple times? And yeah. that to me is irritating. Like I did not think they ever should have been a couple and I'm glad they weren't, but both the opening scene and then her doing the whole rom-com thing at the airport, all of that, it, it really was saying to the fans, okay, this, this strange thing that you've decided you wanted, we're going to make it into a joke. And that to me, I don't like. But the, you know what? The, it, it didn't bother me. And I'm not a Ted and Rebecca shipper by any means. I was rooting for Rebecca and, and the dude from the boat, whose name I already forgot. But uh, uh, they, you never get it. She tells him that she's Rebecca, but we do not hear his name. He's right. Just okay, thanks. So I feel guy. less crazy now. But like going back to season one, one of the things that I really loved about the show right off the bat when, we, when I was watching the screeners was all the different ways that it, it poked fun at the tropes in different sports movies. And I feel like this is now poking those po poking at some of the rom-com tropes. And that's why it didn't bother me because I did appreciate the, the way that it's like kind of tongue in cheek about like, yeah, we know this is a nod to major league or this is a nod to, to whatever sports movie or the natural or whatever. And they're doing the same thing, right? They're with, except that now, instead of it being a sports thing, it's with a rom-com thing. And that's why I liked it. So. I'm just, I'm just, I just was not sure a lot this season on which things they knew were creepy and strange and which things they didn't. Like, I don't know if the show really wanted you for even a second to invest in the idea of Jack and Keely as a couple. And if the show wanted you to ignore the fact that it was a very predatory, wealthy woman coming in and obsessively, um, whatevering a subordinate worker in a way that never seemed romantic for a second to me. So, no, I mean, I, look, you know, I don't, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as a queer woman, that shit was hot, <laughs> but from a story point, not. <laughs> I appreciate your ability to distinguish between those <laughs> yes. two things. And, but Dan, if you look at what they did last year with Rebecca and Sam, I think that this is a show that like really does not in any way worry about the power imbalance in these kinds of relationships. But at least the show did finally realize that that was not a thing that they could do. And I thought that Rebecca and Sam made a lot more sense as a couple. Rebecca and Sam, I thought, made kind of sense as a couple. There was a little sweetness. There was a little sense of what they added to each other's lives. Whereas with Jack and Keeley, I didn't feel like there was a single thing other than gifts that they added to each other's lives. And it really just was a weird, weird billionaire coming and harassing a subordinate until she dated her. And then slut shaming her, and then yes. suddenly, and then Keeley is the one who's upset that Jack is not texting her in the wake of that, which again sort of really just completely takes away Keeley's agency and independence. That really sucked. 
yeah, there were there were a lot of things like that. And and like I said, I see here we are here we are being negative, and I and I can continue to insist that if Wait, I put critics on the, being negative, no, we can be positive too. Guess guess what? I'm going to warn you in advance, Leslie. At least two of the shows that we're about to talk about in their season wraps, we're going to say nice things about. So right. that well, is. Well, let's say well, well let's and end this Ted Lasso segment. I, with, I think with we got a nice lot more things. to go. <laughs> yeah, I got some, I got some nice things. The whole okay. the whole final match sequence was really good. I, I mean, I have yeah. one question, which is I'm not sure why Danny Rojas has Isaac take the penalty kick. That was not something that they set up at all. But there was lots of other good bits, sort of this culmination again of Jamie becoming a selfless player. They run Nate's play one more time where Jamie is the decoy, the celebration. All of that was really, really satisfying to me. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of good Coach Beard stuff in there. Uh, and I liked some of the things they set up in the mont montage, and I'm so relieved that Roy becomes the new manager of the team, whether the show continues or not, because yeah, I, I was, was dreading the idea it was going to be Nate. Oh, yes. God, it was never going to be Nate, but the thing I don't understand is why Higgins had to prepare an elaborate uh, dossier of potential candidates when absolutely everybody knew it was going to be Roy. I mean, It could have just been Roy. You don't know what was in that. She <laughs> no. could have opened it, and it was just could have been a picture of, of, of Roy Kent, and Which, that's it. That might, look, and honestly, Honestly, that might have been funny if they'd cut over to her desk and there would have been the, if there would have been the dossier and it would have just been a picture of Roy underneath it. That would have been I would have liked that. Uh, the thing I'll say about I about I don't understand why Isaac uh, um, took the penalty. I mean, he and was the captain of the team and he hadn't had his really captain moment aside he, from, he, you know, he the, the funny lately, Christmas party stuff. Other than getting pissed off with uh, with Colin about not telling him he was gay, which was also a, a sort of strange oh, tonal yeah. decision, though. Was I it a liked... Christmas party? It might have been an end of season party. Sorry. But, uh, but like and I also I, I went back and, and rewatched the several variations on Isaac kicks the ball through the net. I don't think the director understood what was supposed to be shown in any of those shots. I, I don't think anyone knew how to do that. It really does look like the ball goes over. A hundred percent. There's just no there's nothing to be done about that. Uh, look, it, it, there, they wanted to have the nod to Danny Rojas and the Ips from season two, and they made yeah. sure we got the cutaway to the very concerned looking Greyhound, which I thought was, In the which helmet. I thought was, oh my God, yes. so cute, which I thought was extreme. So that, that I totally bought and totally liked. Um, let's see, God, we've made it all this time into this conversation. We haven't talked about the triumphant return of Shannon. Who? Who? Oh my God, Shannon. The girl who taught Ted Lasso how to dribble in season one and vanished in season two and gets Trent Krim to, Krim to sign her book. Oh, right. OK. Yeah, yeah. Shannon, who I tweeted the other day, I was pissed off about the fact that we'd had this season of 70 minute episodes and we hadn't found any time for Shannon. But I had high hopes that Shannon would appear in the finale and <laughs> damned if Shannon didn't appear possibly twice. I'm not 100 percent sure, because part of the problem is if you have an actor who ages and changes and you don't show them for multiple years, people aren't necessarily going to recognize who they are, at least in the scene with Shannon at the bookstore. She asked Krim to sign her uh, the book to Shannon. How do we feel about Trent Krim just becoming the worst reporter in the world? Like this entire show was about how people change or do or do not. Trent Krim becoming the worst reporter in the world is very perplexing to me. <laughs> well, what is, what is it that you feel Trent Krim should have reported that he didn't? Mostly, I feel like uh, he was Trent writing Krim, a book. He was he was let go from his reporting job and he for was being the worst reporter book. for being the worst reporter in the world. Also. He violated a source, which was why he got fired from his job, which he deserved to. But the fact that he basically became a let's hang out with everyone. I'm going to be a diamond dog. And then also that he'd written the entire book uh, before the finale and and had a, a nicely bound, fully edited. Uh, he said it wasn't version. finished, obviously. <laughs> 
Come on. He was leaving. They, they were le- uh, uh, They were both allegedly leaving. Like, you know what I mean? Get their feedback while they're still here before you have to go, you know, come on. When Trent Krim is on screen, all I can think about is Trent Krim's hair. So, well, and, 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 that, and that awesome was, t-shirts. And that was fully acknowledged that, uh, that um, in the world of perfect things, there are very few, but Trent Krim's hair is one of them. So, uh, so yeah. So anyway, I was, I was happy with the return of Shannon. I, there were a lot of kind of callbacks in the finale that I thought were good. And really and truly, the finale generally worked well for me, other than the times that it reminded me of the things that hadn't worked. Uh, but in general, the finale did work for me. I mean, Ted gets back together with his ex-wife, right? (sighs) Because the the new guy was like, soccer, nothing happens. And that's another relationship (sighs) that the show didn't want to acknowledge is gross, is Michelle starts dating a guy who used to be her therapist, then became her couple's therapist, who helped convince them to end the marriage. Then he moves in with Michelle. Like, I know... uh, and so I don't know if that gross. is technically going to get you bounced from the psychi- oh, psychiatric sure association, but that's not good. Also, also Ted's reaction to it was still awful. Like Ted's Ted's yeah. jealousy and all that was also really, really ugly and not a great character thing that was never, I don't think, fully worked through. But yeah, I, I kind of felt like I needed some scene. Like there were plenty of scenes as they were watching the game together where it was pretty clear the guy was a, a douche and needed to be moved out of whatever. I, I feel like yes. I needed them to give Michelle that much, again, returning to the Keeley stuff, to give Michelle that much agency and to realize as she was sitting there in that moment that the fact that he could not invest in this drama even for the sake of poor Henry, who was so very excited about it, that that meant that he was clearly an unsuitable potential spouse. But I mean, let, let's face it, all of these things that they should have done, that they could have addressed, this show should have at least gone on for four seasons. And and obviously Jason's feelings about being done and this being the end of Ted's story and wanting to be back home with his son kind of forced their hand. So could they have done a fourth season of a show called Ted Lasso, this current show that we have seen without him. That's also, the bigger question for me as a reporter anyway. Also, you know what else they could have done instead of a fourth season? They could have made the episodes in season three longer. <laughs> it's just amazing that they would do these 60-minute episodes and yet we're talking about all the things that they left out. Or How does that screen, happen? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, is it just... I mean... I don't want to give like J- Bill Lawrence too much credit for previous seasons. And I don't want to give Jason Sudeikis too much blame for this, but Bill was off doing shrinking and was, as everyone has said, he was not actively involved in this. And he's the guy with the most TV experience here. I, I don't think it's completely a coincidence that this year felt a lot more shapeless than previous seasons had. It, it clearly isn't. But also I would add that still, they theoretically have development executives at uh, Disney and uh, not Disney plus at Apple TV plus who, who could have at Warner some Brothers, point said, yeah. This is this is maybe a little bit. Uh, you know. I mean, it did. You know, there were. I'm. I've heard that there were some some reshoots and some script retooling. But like, I mean, that's pretty common on on shows, especially when you have your showrunner off doing something else. But like, Bill was not the only showrunner on this show. Yeah. Right. They're, they have a lot of the senior people. I mean, Jason is deeply involved in this. Right. So many other people that have been with the show for a very long time in in very senior level roles were 100 percent committed to this. So, I mean, it it does feel like this was like I said, I I hold firm to that. Like, I'm not pinning this on Jason, but it feels like they knew that that their runway was ending and they had a lot to get to. And it's an ensemble show, really, even though it's called Ted Lasso. And you couldn't get to everything. You just couldn't. And then you you put in all this, uh, you know, shit with like Shandy and all that other stuff. Like, 
<laughs> and it's a less or and also the the uh, you know the one minute long joke about uh, a coach random coach's testicles. I mean, that was what I was watching as I watched the episode and I'm like, okay, <laughs> 75 minutes. What would I cut? I would cut the guy's testicles. That sounds really wrong, Wait a Dan. minute, Dan. I think you want to <laughs> rephrase that. This is a family that. podcast. Dan. I think I wanted to phrase it exactly the way I did. But to, but as just as a last <laughs> thing, and I'm sure that Alan is gets this on Twitter and in comments and whatever as well. There is absolutely the fan base whose approach to these episodes have been... Um, it's more of stuff that I love and I love having 75 minutes of stuff that I love. And I think that's kind of where Leslie was starting this to begin with. And while yep. acknowledging that she's not a, a critic that, you know, that, that if this is a thing you love and you love the things that it does, having 75 minutes of it is even better than having 28 minutes of it. So I, I can... loved it. I loved it. It stayed with me. It made me very happy. It made me feel emotional. It filled my heart. I woke up this morning still thinking about it and to me, that's great, great TV, great art that that should stay with you and it should should leave a mark on you. And and for me, it's like, do people change? You know, as as Roy brought up when he finally caved and became a diamond dog. Right. Do people really change? Sometimes you can't see that. See, and Sometimes don't get me started there because the person who got the last word on that was Higgins, the one character who I'd argue probably really hasn't changed at all or he's at more, least he's hasn't changed. More confident, though. Well, he, I think okay. he has. He has. But I think all of those changes took place between season one and season two. What would you say Higgins's arc in season three was? Oh, I mean, he didn't have one. Okay, so he, he was like, "Oh, I'm just here. I love what we're doing. I'm going to keep doing it." Because but every I'm happy other person in that every yeah. other person in that room, I could tell you the way that they changed across three seasons. Higgins, I can tell you how he changed basically in season one. But he's also one of the older cast members. Like his character is one of the older and more established characters, right? So he's conceivably been through a lot of change in and, you know, on his own and then through his marriage and, and, and fatherhood. And maybe this professional sense of, of self-worth was the last thing that he needed to change about himself. So he's just been good since season one. He's been like, yeah, I'm pretty much. He's happy with who he is. And ultimately, at the end of the day, isn't that what 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 this whole journey is? I like that. Let's let's stop there and move on to some other shows. <laughs> Next up. Number two. Time for Succession and Barry, both of which we know for a fact ended their runs. These are there is no question whatsoever about either show. These were series finales. And joining us again is Rolling Stone chief TV critic. Friend of the Five, family member of the Five, BFF of the Five, Alan Seppenwall for another season in review, this time looking at HBO's Succession and Barry. I will admit, I never really got into Barry. I, I think I watched the first two or three episodes and then, I don't know, I just moved on. But I thought the Succession finale was great. Just, I'll leave it, I'll let you guys take it because I know there's a lot to say here. <laughs> you lead, Alan. Uh, all right, are we doing Succession first? I yeah, thought... let's start with Succession. I mean, okay, I'll tee you up here. Does yeah. it make sense that Tom was the last one standing? That Kendall yes. is the last, is is sitting there, and as Jeremy Strong has said in, in interviews, actually started walking off and, and was basically suicidal, but that got cut. So are you happy with all of the, where, where all of the Roy's landed? Yes, um, I, I thought that this made sense. It's, I mean, the, the three of them leaving Connor aside, cause he was never going to get the company. The three of them are all have these wildly overinflated sense of selves. And it basically takes like Roman at the very end to sort of realize, no, wait a minute. This is BS. We are BS. 
all of that. And the interesting, I had a weird experience watching the finale, which was for the first hour, maybe even hour and 15 minutes. I thought, okay, this is very good, but it feels like, okay, we're just building to, Kendall gets this and the siblings are getting along. And this feels on the one hand, as someone who has spent four seasons with these characters and mostly dislikes them, but kind of empathizes with them because Jesse Armstrong is very good at what he does. I'm like, well, this is kind of nice, I guess, but this doesn't really feel like succession. And all of it is just completely setting us up for that five minute scene where Shiv walks out of the vote and just says she needs a minute. And instead her brothers follow her and will not leave her alone until finally she realizes, no, you know, Ken, I can't vote for you. You're incompetent. You're going to ruin everything. Uh, and that's, I mean, that feels what it should be. I don't think you can have a, a happy ending on this show. I also think that like all the speculation about, oh, it's going to be Greg wouldn't have made sense. I think that would have felt too funny um, on a show that sort of, it wants you to feel bad and it's a feel bad ending, but it felt like spiritually true to it. And those five minutes when it's just Sarah Snook and Jeremy Strong and Kieran Culkin in that room together were really just sensational, sensational television. It, it was a horror. It was a horror film is what it was. And so, and so it was basically, you had all, you had everyone in, in the kitchen, uh, doing the meal fit for a King scene and other, basically those, those three actors who spent so much of this finale just together were so good together and, and, and just so much fun to watch them. But the meal fit for a King scene was like, okay, everything is happy. So much smiling, so much laughing, joking, licking cheese, all of that stuff. And, uh, and yeah, I don't think, you know, there was no point at which I ever thought, okay, even if we accept that, that, uh, that Luke is worse than they are, you know, that, that he, that his being in charge is going to be a worse situation. And therefore it would be a victory of some sort for Kendall to rise to the position. I never thought that we were even getting that sort of happy ending. And I never thought that there was any chance that Jesse Armstrong was going to over nice the finale um the the show has always been about the the pain that is inflicted on you by people who you love the most and uh people who know you best and the fact that we got that scene in the room as everybody watched from the other boardrooms as these three siblings came to blows for the first time um yeah, that it was it was where it was supposed to be going. Um, and, you know, lots lots of people on Twitter being like, ah, I knew it that it was going to be Tom. And I just I don't think that's ever what the show was supposed to be about. I don't think the show was ever, it, the show. Sure, it was called Succession and somebody was eventually going to succeed somebody, whatever. But it wasn't about predicting who it was going to be. It was about what are the circumstances that are going to bring us here and how are the circumstances going to be the worst circumstances possible? How are the circumstances going to be the most self-serving, self-lacerating, um, self-defeating at the same time circumstances? And, and I thought that that was very much where the show took itself is to is to what is the deepest depth of pain that most of these characters can get? What is the most we can shatter them? Maybe we'll say at some point that there's a little bit of hope for for Roman because he drinks Jerry's fav favorite drink and stares winsomely at a at a martini glass. Maybe that means there's hope. Uh, maybe if you want to choose to pretend um, that that Tom and Shiv are going to have some sort of marriage of power convenience here that that might be happy because at least the kid will have a father and a mother at once and that will be convenient for them. 
maybe that's kind of happy, but nothing here is happy. <laughs> One of the things I heard a lot on social media and in comments, everything is people sort of either being confused or outright disagreeing with the idea that Shiv would vote against her brothers in that situation or what her motivations were. And I thought about this a lot and going back and looking at it, there's a few things. One is when she walks into the office that morning and she sees like Kendall bantering with Stewie and Kendall putting his feet up on their dad's desk. You know, it starts to dawn on her. Oh, wait a minute. Like he's just going to shut all of us out and actually act like the king and not share the crown like he promised to when we were, you know, when we were in the kitchen together. Uh, and, th and then she gets into the vote and she's still feeling troubled and she gets up and she needs a moment and she's genuinely not undecided until Kendall follows her and does every possible thing wrong that you can do wrong in that moment, or, you know, especially just denying, you know, that he killed the waiter uh, at the end of season one. I mean, Dan, what? how do you feel about it? Like, do, what do you think? Why do you think she made that decision? And when do you think she made it? I, I don't I mean, I don't think it's decisive. And I think that there I don't think it's one thing necessarily. I think that absolutely that is that is a read. And I think probably that's the read that I have in the most general sense of she was this was never a thing that she was completely on board with regardless it was just a thing that she you know in a in a moment of feeling betrayed by by Lucas and all of that she you know she was willing to go along with the situation that she had been resistant of for four seasons you know so so she was never a hundred percent on board anyway um and then, yeah, she gets to the office and she realizes more and more that she's an afterthought in this equation. And she continues to think that she shouldn't be an afterthought. She continues to, and she has since the since the pilot, believed that she's being overlooked and that she should have the power. And then, yeah, uh, Kendall goes in and, and Kendall's the shit out of it. And he, <laughs> he absolutely, as you say, whatever the worst way he could have handled everything was in that room, he handled it after having handled everything relatively well at the at at mom's compound uh and in the kitchen you know where he actually it was kind of amusing to watch Kendall not screw things up and not put his foot in his mouth and then he did in the worst way possible but the other way you can look at it is that this was always a thing that she wanted to do and that she wanted to do it in the most public way possible that would make her look as if she was the one who made the decision that she gets to be uh the queen of thorns she gets to be the it was me I was the deciding vote this was the power move that I made if this was survivor this is the thing that's at the top of my resume to win the million dollars however you want to put it so I think it can go either way and i don't think it needs to go i mean she she's a fictional character so you don't need to make it into a this is the one reason why it happened i think it's i think there are multiple logical reasons why the decision that she made wouldn't have ultimately been the best decision for her but of course in the show's definitive style there's no way that the alliances that she made at the end are really the best alliances for her either I mean, to me, the the whole thing ends. It's like this this whole show has been about these terrible people that you can't help but rooting for. And what really stayed with me is, of course, this is the ending that they all get is that they all have to live with themselves because they are terrible people. So it, it, it to me, it ends the only way it can. Yeah, nobody's happy. I mean, even Tom, I don't think he's entirely happy. He's gotten the job, but he knows he is Matson's puppet. It's his job to be what they call it, the pain sponge. Yeah, you know, he's gonna he's, he's gonna fire everybody, and then he's gonna get fired. That's yes, how many times have we seen Shiv. this and reported on it here at THR or Rolling Stone? 
Yeah, he's back with Shiv, but like I don't think he likes her anymore. Um, you know, no, but we it's went a control. It's a control thing, like the hand, the yeah. whole thing in the car with the hand, like. Yep. Oh, come on. I will sort of touch your hand, but I won't take it entirely. It's just, it's a mess. It's like I am calling for your hand, like you're my, you're like the power dynamic between them has completely changed. And in the background, the whole time, it's it's these are people who end up in sad and desperate straits, but you're supposed to be reminded at all times that even if this feels like it was a horrible, horrible defeat for Kendall and that it has left him staring out at Battery Park at the at the water and, and he's a lost, lost man. He's a lost, lost man who has a check for multiple billions of dollars coming to him almost immediately. You know, how the question of where you're supposed to pity these people and how much is always a very real question that that as i said in my review afterwards just whatever their version of tragedy is it's a very different version of tragedy from what our version of tragedy would be <laughs> i do love the whole jeremy strong detail that like when they're filming that scene where he's looking out at new york harbor without telling anyone he was going to do it he just decided in one of the takes i'm gonna run over to the fence and try to climb up and go over and the actor playing colin had to like run in and pull him back I mean, that's the most Jeremy Strong thing I think no, we, a, he could have done, right? Never stop Jeremy Stronging Jeremy Strong. And he please. also drank that disgusting stuff. The ugh. well, there's yeah. no, I mean, there's no reason why it needed to actually be disgusting. It could have just been a smooth. The fact have you met Jeremy Strong? Of course, oh, it has to be disgusting. Absolutely, I, I think he is able to believe things are disgusting. I think that could have been a uh, a a Wendy's smoothie, and he would have found a way to make himself believe it was stale cheese. But also, I, I, like I feel like so much of the show has come down to different. Uh, sad close-ups of of Kendall looking off of buildings and standing on perches. I feel like probably he, in his mind, did takes where he considered jumping off every single one of them, and and even when it was like season one. So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the pool, right? The pool scene where it's like the, the pool anytime scene. he's near water, trouble is coming. It's it's true, but no, it, it was it. This to me was an extremely satisfying finale, and also just one of those things that I that I that I want to be able to have in my back pocket to point at anyone who wants to say, "God, why do you always complain that TV shows are too long?" Because I assure you, I absolutely, totally do, and I, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time repeating over and over again that the most recent season of of Ted Lasso was the equivalent of thirty one episodes of a broadcast comedy, uh, because that, that was the math that I did. Is that if you average a broadcast comedy at 21 minutes, uh, it was the equivalent of 31 episodes of Abbott Elementary. Uh, but but this was this was 90 minutes, and never for a second did I think this is getting too long. Every single second, I was like, this could go on forever, and I would just watch this. Uh, except that I have to write about it tonight. But yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely the better of the two supersized finales featuring uh, Dame Harriet Walter this week. God, Harriet. She's just everywhere and and so good and also perfectly fine in Silo. If anyone's been watching Silo, just a lot of Dame Harriet Walter out there. <laughs> I got no beef with that. I, I, before we move on to Barry, I, I my last question is, you know, uh, Brian Cox did a, uh, an interview and he said that he thinks Logan was killed off too soon in the final season. Before we move over to, to Barry, what do you guys think about that I idea? I think that the phrasing of the way that everyone has been reporting that is a little off. I feel like... I could I could 100% be wrong. God, I feel like I'm saying everything is 100%. Apologize. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, I could be wrong. 
I feel like the context was more that when he read the script or saw the script, he felt like it was too soon. Like, like not him saying this was a mistake to have been done stepping back in retrospect. Uh, but no, he's but he's wrong. But of course, he would say that because he wanted to be on succession for for more. The the, the death was absolutely at, at the right place. Alan? <laughs> yeah, because you needed really enough time to see it play out what the world is like without Logan Roy in it and how much worse it gets and how dangerous his three, you know, stupid children are um, and all that. And I see now I'm doing the same thing. I'm not counting Connor. So I'm, I'm as guilty as everybody else. <sighs> poor, I, poor Connor. <laughs> I did really like, though, the Brian Cox cameo in the finale where you're, they're watching the video of their dad. And it's like like Shiv talks about in her funeral speech about like, he, you, 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 you were usually kept in darkness or in shadow with him. But when he shone the light on you, it was incredible. And it's like, if that was the version of their dad they had all of the time, think how different their lives would have been. Yeah, that was that was good. And it was exactly the right way to make sure that Brian Cox was in the finale, that you remembered Logan's existence. But if Logan hadn't been, you know, if Logan had been killed, had been killed off in the penultimate episode of the penultimate episode, that would have been all that it was about. And that shouldn't have been the case. And if he hadn't been, and I think we've all established he needed to die regardless, but it, you, you just didn't want that to be what it was about. Instead, it was about what the kids were doing. And Logan got absolutely all of the send off and pomp and circumstance that he deserved as well. So, yes. Yeah. Number three. Well, next up, we're going to shift over to Barry, sticking with HBO finales. Again, this is a show I didn't watch. So let's just jump it right into the end here. Should I be mad at Hen my childhood hero, Henry Winkler? Or are you happy with the way that this ended? Or should I be celebrating him? I don't know how to feel because I don't watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make this, this segment is entirely about me and my relationship with Henry. Well, I mean, Alan did a, a fantastic interview with Henry Winkler that ultimately ended up being all about uh, Alan's very, very twisted and sadistic history with Henry Winkler as well. So I'm very know. afraid of Henry Winkler right now. Let's just say that. If, if you haven't read it, Leslie, it's a really terrific interview. Um, that I've gets, been waiting <laughs> until after we were done. I didn't want to read anything. That it, it gets it gets to the root of uh, the the lifelong rivalry between the two that Henry Winkler did not know he had, but Henry Winkler has been stewing for 20 plus years, wondering who cost him a Battery Park Emmy nomination. Oh, and now he knows. <laughs> he's coming for you, Alan. Yep, and he's coming for me with Rip Torn's prop gun, so I'm in trouble. I I was thinking Mario Lopez and Henry Winkler were going to show up at your door, but you know that's that's a no. Is it Mario Lopez showing up at your door, Dan? It's yes. That is, that is the nature of the callback here. Um, but yeah, I think you should feel good for Henry Winkler because Henry Winkler got a really good vehicle and won an Emmy for this show. So yes, that that took away some of my guilt. Absolutely. I mean, I the the moment when Gene sort of bursts into the living room and just kills Barry very quickly, and all Barry has time to say is, oh, wow, and then we cut to black. I thought that was incredible. I thought there was a number of really fantastic moments in that finale, especially the the showdown between Fuchs and NoHo Hank in the lobby of, of Hank's corporate headquarters, where it's like Stephen Root just spins this incredible monologue, just summing up all of the themes of the show about how like people learn to play roles and you know to deny all of the terrible things that they've done. And he gives he gives Hank a chance. He gives him an out. He says, "Tell me the truth about Cristobal, and I will leave you alone, and you never have to see me again." And Hank can't do it. He can't let go of the lie because it hurts too much to admit that he caused his lover's death. 
Uh, and then there's one of those uh, amazing, you know, Bill Hader directed oneers where you're seeing all of the carnage that comes from everyone having been shot. Like that was extraordinary. I thought the the death of Barry was great. Didn't love the epilogue. I'm curious, Dan, what you thought about that. Um, going back quickly, just a- Anthony Kerrigan in the in the the close up of Noho Hank's yes. eyes as just that's just one of those great acting moments where. You just watch the actor's eyes and you see an entire series worth of of journey playing out beat by beat by beat. Just a, a just a great piece of performing. And Stephen Root, especially in the badass out of jail, uh, the Raven version of that character, I thought he was absolutely at his best. And, and just a reminder of how many things Stephen Root can do. Like, I think we have all, you know, anyone has whatever their version of Stephen Root is in their head, whether it's from office space or news radio or whatever. He is such a versatile actor and, and just yep. does not get enough credit for how he can do so many things. And it's just like, okay, fine. That's just Stephen Root doing another one of the Stephen Root things. Um, the ending was... It was interesting. I, I it, it was interesting and it kind of it it did a good job of underlining the artifice of Hollywood and the perspective warping nature of Hollywood and the ability of Hollywood to take a story, to take real things or real emotions or whatever and commodify them and slot them into a genre. A thing I thought was interesting about the movie that uh that that Jaden Martell as as their son watches, it seemed like there was at least the possibility that it wasn't a bad movie. Like, I'm not a hundred. It wasn't the version of the movie that I thought would you would do if it was going to be clearly the parody. That was that was what I was saying. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was supposed to be, especially (sighs) the stuff in the relationship between the fake Gene and the fake Barry was just so full of like inspirational teacher cliches. And then they pivot and suddenly Gene is super sinister and menacing and very broadly played by by Michael Kumpsey. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, Yeah, I didn't. I I thought it was supposed to be bad. I didn't think it was supposed to be Good. I just thought it was a different version of the bad movie from the one that we would normally see. Like, like I was a little surprised that it was that they didn't stunt cast Barry, that they didn't stunt cast, you know, that it wasn't here's Will Forte's version of of Barry, you know, and then and then whoever as um, I, uh, Scott Bayo as I'm trying to think of, of sort of the person who would be the parallel version. Like that was what I thought the joke was going to be of that movie. And instead, it was kind of more the. It wasn't the Lifetime version of the movie. It was more the HBO movie version or something. I don't, I don't, that, here's my problem. I, I wasn't exactly able to put a finger on what I thought it was trying to be. It just wasn't the thing that I immediately expected it to be. I I did not write a recap of this. Angie Han wrote a very fine uh, recap review. I did not. Uh, so this is the first time I tried to process it. No, I, th- I thought it was an interesting perspective. I don't know if that was necessarily what I thought the takeaway of the whole series was for that to be kind of the last beat. But I, I thought it was interesting and I thought Jaden Martel-, Martel was good with his, you know, with how he also had kind of a conflicted version of what he was responding to and the way that he was seeing his father's life play out. And and that was interesting to me. I don't know that I thought it was 100% 
once again, 100%, everything's key. We're just keeping it 100 <laughs> this week. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know that I necessarily think thought it was the most satisfying of endings, but I thought it was all, and, and I think that's the way I felt about the entire season, is I thought it was an interesting approach to everything without always being the best approach to it. Sometimes it felt like it was kind of more plotty than it needed to be, that that it was sort of like, okay, here are the five plot points that we have to hit in this episode, along with some vaguely European framings of things, because, you know, Bill Bill Hader likes likes his compositions. He likes his his moody and slow-moving tableaus. Uh um yeah, but I I was still <sighs> I still liked the finale and liked the finale a lot. Just very clearly, I haven't processed 100%. 100%. Once again, just going <laughs> to... I guess I guess part of my problem is that, like, A, the movie goes on for a really long time, and I don't know that we needed to see that much of it, but e even if it's sort of trying to tell us what the public version of this story is, and we'll get to that in a second, but it's we're seeing it through the eyes of a character we barely know, and this version of that character we do not know at all. We have not seen Jaden Martell until a minute before he starts watching this, uh, you know, playing this role. And so you're sort of, you're trying to interpret the events of the series and the way that they're being warped in this movie through the eyes of basically a stranger. And that's sort of tough to do. And if you do a version of it where it is, you know, Sally watching the movie or Sally watching the movie even with John and you're seeing both of them and you have Sarah Goldberg, who is so incredible, and you're getting to see her what's going through her face, I think that works and that connects a lot better than the version that they did. I, I can I can buy that and and yes I'm glad I'm glad we got in a mention of how great Sarah Goldberg is and how great Sarah Goldberg was I think after the time jump like I, I've heard some people not being huge fans of the of the time jump and what it did or didn't accomplish in the story but I I thought she was consistently great I thought she was consistently great through the yeah. entire series but I thought she was consistently great after the time jump when she had a difficult thing to play because it was really hard to read Sally. Ha ha, yeah. uh, Sally. Anyway. Yeah. So, so the, la the last thing I want to ask about is, how do you feel about Jim Moss, the Robert Wisdom character, suddenly becoming a moron who basically blames Gene for everything and leaves Barry alone in his garage where he can escape and doesn't seem to care about Barry anymore and sort of allows this public fiction to go out that Gene did everything and Barry did nothing? I think people, I think people find the fictions that they want to believe and the people and that they want to accept. And I think that ultimately is what is what happens with that character. And I don't know that I ever fully bought that character at all. Uh, and it didn't bother me because, you know, I can I can watch Robert Wisdom be threatening and all that. Uh easy but um but yeah I, th I think it's just it, i think it's about the narrativizing of the truth and which version of things you take and i think the version that ultimately they settle on allows everyone to get punished and i think if you're if you're the robert wisdom version of the character then you can accept you know like like obviously Gene was not really an innocent in all of this. He was he he made a mess out of things, even if only with his hubris. So if you decide, okay, I need everyone to be punished, and the person who uh, who really needed to be punished got a bullet in the head, so he's he's as punished as you can get. I can see how a sadistic version of resolution would be. And yes, let's also send Gene Cousineau to prison. And now that's how I get my closure, even if we know. It's an artificial closure and a, and a hollow closure. He just chose the narrative that gave him his his resolution. Yeah, that's that would be how okay. I would say it. Fair enough. Number four. 
Up next, continuing this critics-focused look at some recent finales, we're going to shift to Showtime's Yellow Jackets, which did not end its run altogether. It just ended its second season. And again, joining us is Rolling Stone Chief TV critic and friend of the five, our beloved friend, Alan Steppenwall, for another season in review. Hey. So. Hey, guys. First time in a long time. Hey. Glad to have you back, Alan. (laughs) So, look. I was a diehard fan of this show in season one. I loved everything about it. We did a special episode of TV's Top 5 as a postmortem with the showrunners. And this season, look, yeah, it wasn't as good. I'm just going to say that. And again, I'm not a critic, but that I'm not quitting the show either. But it just, the things that I loved about it in season one, it, it, I love the cast. I love the chemistry, but some of like the the present day storyline, I could not have been less interested, which is criminal because that cast is stellar. And not, that's not to say that the the 1990s cast is not because they're fantastic too. But everything that happened in the past was so much more compelling than what happened in the present day storyline. And then the death at the end, dude, no. That said. My favorite part of this season, the music cues. So, guys, wh- where do you fall? Uh, I mean, I d- I liked the first season, and at times I I loved it, but I sort of had issues with it even back then. In terms of, I found on the one hand, I thought that the best actors on the show were in the adult storyline. On the other hand, I felt like the teenage storyline was much much better. And they and especially one of the big problems with season one was they kept the adults very far apart for a long time. And so you had to watch things like Taisa running for the state Senate, which nobody cares about whatsoever. Right. Which and, was completely devoid in season two. Right. Like yes. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. She just abandons her job. And that's that's fine, because, again, nobody cares about that. Season two, you come back. And again, all of the grownups are separated. It takes until the end of the sixth episode out of nine episodes where they are all in the same place in the same shot. I'm sort of flabbergasted that they didn't learn a lesson about that. And so everybody's kind of off in their own little show. Melanie Linsky is starring in sort of this black comedy about how difficult it is to get away with murder. And I love Melanie Linsky. She's my favorite person on the show. But like that just that felt completely extraneous to everything else. There's that hilarious moment uh, where one of the others calls her phone and her, her useless husband, Jeff, picks up and like they fill him in on what's been going on in the main plot. It's like, oh, yeah, this is funny that like they're completely oblivious to it but it's just it's it's so strange to me that they still don't get it and on top of that i can't remember whose postmortem i read this in but somebody very smartly made the point uh in a piece and i wish i could credit them that because they want to keep surprises in the teenage timeline you always have to have the adults speaking very very vaguely about what they did when they did it how they did it and so there's just so much talking around things in the present day. And on top of that, I just thought that the adult version of Lottie was really, really boring. And she was the center of pretty much everything that was happening in the grown-up timeline. So that was a bummer. I thought the teenage stuff was better, but it's just, it's a show that's sort of trying to juggle a lot of different elements. And for the most part, they kept them in balance in season one. And in season two, I don't think they really did. And, and then there's, you know, you happen to, you didn't even mention the the question of the supernatural aspects of it all and whether we're supposed <sighs> to take any of that literally or metaphorically and i just every time they want us to take it literally in a supernatural sense that's kind of where i i check out like if you just want to tell me that the wilderness is 
a psychological reaction to trauma and that it's a way that they've rationalized all of this and the way that they've rationalized the horrible things that they've done and the vagaries of tragedy and and you know that that the dude went through the ice as they were about to kill one of their friends but the wilderness chose it but the show can't decide i don't think if it wants us to invest in them as supernatural aspects, or if it just wants to say, this is what trauma can feel like looking back. If it were just that, I would be like, yes, be that. Be about trauma, but be about trauma while also dipping your toes in the supernatural stuff. It can be done. It can obviously be done. Stephen King has built a career out of it. It's not like it can't be done. I just don't know that they do it well. The cult stuff was never anything more than kind of generic cult stuff and why was the why was the symbol from the woods in the in the area when there was the pu- big pullback at the end of episode six what was the the point of that i don't i don't know but and yet for all of that i it's another show it's a lot like ted lasso honestly where if i just latch on to the things i like i can really like the show pretty consistently i i like the survival plot line and i like a lot of the stuff they did with it and i'm not just talking about the fun with cannibalism though you know i'm a big fan of fun with cannibalism uh but i i like that storyline and and i can also still latch on to the things i like in the present whether it's Melanie Linsky and a goat. I, you know, that was every every second of Melanie Linsky with the goat was fantastic. That that was hilarious. I mean, Melanie Linsky just period is absolutely. Fantastic. Full uh, stop. I, yes. I also this season, at least I found myself really, really much more than the first season where I felt like Christina Ricci was kind of in her own show. Maybe in the second season, I just decided I liked the show that she was in a lot. And so just watching the things that she was doing and the choices she was making in the littlest of things, I I could always get enjoyment out of that. I, I loved Elijah Wood. Again, a completely different show, but I thought he was having a blast and doing it extremely well. Um, I thought that while I wasn't sure that Lauren Ambrose was really necessary, I thought that she was really <laughs> good. Her. And I thought that the yes. way that very clearly Liv Hewson was kind of retroactively tailoring the evolution of that character to match a version that Lauren Ambrose could play. I thought that was really interesting to watch because the Fantastic, first season yeah. um, Liv Hewson was playing kind of the, the more optimistic version. And then there were obvious reasons why that character would become a good deal more depressed by the state of the world. And I thought the second season that was reflected really interestingly. And so like I can, I could always find things that I was latching onto as being, okay, there's the show I love. There's the actors I love. And then things would go off in directions where I'd be like, why are we doing this again? Right. But to me, the the thing that probably frustrated me the most out of this show, out of this season, nothing really happened. I mean, in the present day storyline, they, they're dealing with the fallout of the of Adam, the artist that, that Shauna sleeps with and then they kill. And oh, no, the daughter finds out. Oh, now she's in on it. Oh, now the daughter's going to be just like her mother and she's going to be dark and fucked up. And. I don't care about the daughter and I don't care about the Adam storyline anymore unless he was adult Javi, which he's clearly not because Javi doesn't survive the 1990s. Like, and then, so obviously, you know, so much more transpired in the past because 
I mean, it's a tough winter. How do you survive winter, right? Everyone's starving. There's a baby. There's a lot of things that they had to go through. So it made sense that so much happened in the past, but the present day storylines, like, you know, every time we showed up at Lottie's cult, I was just bored, like Ugh. instantly. I just don't want to see anything else with, with adult Lottie or her cult. Um, and, and Natalie dying to protect this yes. sort of like non-character, like if you're going to kill her off, kill her off. If Juliette Lewis wants to leave or if they just feel the characters outlived her usefulness, that's okay, even though I really like Juliette Lewis. Yeah. But like to do it in that context felt really clumsy to me. I guess in that case, though, that's one of the best parts about the show is the dynamic between Christina Ricci, Melanie Linsky and Julia Lewis. I, yes. I think I agree. But I think also the version of, of Natalie that I was more interested in, at least by the end of the second season, was the teenage version. And, and sure. so so like when they killed off Juliet Lewis, my reaction was, OK, that's sad because I do like the performance, but the version of the character I was still interested in is still on the show. And I don't know finally when we got to the finale where I thought that that character in the present day needed to go. And so, but also that meant that it wasn't moving for me. <laughs> like, like it, it wasn't a situation where she died and I was like, Oh no, it's horrible. It, it was more like a, what the fuck more than anything. And I, they, I'll bring this up to this is the other thing that that I kept waiting. So in in the season two premiere, they reveal a third timeline, the timeline when the sorry, I just got an important email. OK, it's not urgent. OK, they reveal a third timeline, and that's when the Yellow Jackets return home. So you see them in the immediate aftermath of being rescued, and then they never go back there again. The entire season. It's like we're setting this up in the premiere. To me, a, a season premiere is this is what we're going to be exploring this season, right? It's a table setter. I think they still it obviously just finished. They like, still yeah. they, you know, they need the, to fix the pacing issue to me for season three. I think they know that they they do have that in their back pocket, and I think that was I think that was finally the purpose it served. And and I had actually forgotten that that was a thing that was in the first episode but yeah now as you as you mentioned it that and and i do think that a lot of people are curious about it but i think that they know that if they th that that timeline is where a lot of the answers that they're not prepared to give are and a lot of the suspense that they're trying to maintain in the past would be diffused if you had a sense of exactly everything that happened when they got back, because then it would just be answering questions. And I don't think they want to do that. So I think they're, I, I think they, they like having that in their back pocket as a storyline that at some point they're going to explore, because I think it's a, I think it's a, that's a good time period to want to follow those characters. But I think they think that there are things that they have to keep as secrets in the past. And I think they don't want to do that yet. That's or or there are spinoffs, which we know that that Chris McCarthy, who now controls Showtime among every other piece of Paramount, really, except for the streamer. So we know that Chris McCarthy wants spinoffs. Like the very first thing that he did after getting control of Showtime was renew Yellow Jackets for a third season. We know he's talked to the creators about spinoffs and that there are some ideas that are percolating. Here's my pitch. Well, you're already basically taking the Yellowstone model and you're taking here's, you know, one central family in the Yellowstone flagship. And then here's prequels set in a different time period. It's right there for Yellow Jackets. Just break the two shows off. Here's the 1990s Yellow Jackets. Here's the Yellow Jackets when they are rescued in that timeline. And here's the present day 
Yellow Jackets. There's three shows. I just made your whole franchise. Chris McCarthy, send your checks to Burbank. Thanks. But here's my question for you, Leslie. To, I, I understand. I, I listen to TV's top five uh, occasionally. And so I know that IP is very important and that everybody wants to make franchises and that the only things that can get greenlit are things adapted from things that already exist. However, if the, if the viewer satisfaction in the show is way down this year, if the, like, the conversation about it is way down, if this terrible, bizarre release pattern they did where episodes would drop digitally on Fridays and then premiere linearly on Sunday nights opposite the final se season of Succession, which everybody was talking about, if basically this thing went from like word of mouth water cooler phenomenon to, wait a minute, there was a whole season and I just missed it, or there was a whole season and I didn't like it, where is the value in then doing two more shows, three more shows out of it, if people are no longer interested in the brand to begin with? And again, I'm speaking anecdotally. For all I know, like the ratings are great, and the vast majority of the people who are not, you know, terminally online really like it. All I can go on is based on what I'm seeing in my particular bubble on the internet. And so, if that's the case, like, didn't they already kind of miss their window to franchise this? I mean, when did The Walking Dead do spinoffs? I mean, they waited so long. It was but after even, the fact that show was even a monster they did, it was hit and they successful. ignored the spinoff thing. It was still successful, but but people, many people had already checked out by the time. The Fear first the one was successful, but there have been multiple other ones that you don't remember exist, uh, Walking Dead wise. Like th right. that is a that is definitely ex an example of my, not my point is it, it is if you, it doesn't matter qualitatively if it's good or not what matters is if you can sell it international and if it, and or if you can get someone to subscribe to whatever the fuck they're calling uh. Paramount Plus with Showtime or Showtime with Paramount Plus or Show or Paramount Plus just give us all your money. There's a plus all in the name. Call it Paramount Plus Showtime. What are we even doing here? I, I I want to go back though to to the thing that Alan. I just was, want to hear Alan rant some more about the name. Uh, but, <laughs> oh my god, it's so stupid! <laughs> I want to scream every time I hear the words Paramount Plus with Showtime. It's like Navy NCIS. Oh. You're being redundant. Stop it. You know, as a copy editor, I used to have a sign on my on my office door that said, uh, "The Department of Redundancy Department." I thought it was more like. HBO Max, now Max, the home of HBO, uh, which also is... With is, no credits, because <laughs> that still hasn't been fixed. I, I want to go back, though, to the to the thing that Alan was just saying about the release pattern and timing, because I think, honestly, that had so much to do with a lot of, just in terms of buzz and whatnot, buzz, Yellow Jackets, um, that, that they were struggling with this year. And I think it was two-pronged. I think premiering it against succession was a mistake it, it was it was just absolutely sucked up the oxygen hubris and and it and ex, ex, totally hubris it was the this is a show that people want to talk about it will still be a show that people want to talk about even with succession people still did want to talk about it just less it did not have the room to itself and there was no time it was going to have the room to itself but it 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 was consistently not on the tip of anyone's tongue and that hurt it. Also, the the decision, and this is something that Showtime is still figuring out and still trying to make sense of, the 
digital rollout on Fridays and then linear rollout on Saturdays, I think that absolutely confused the conversation because it became a neither fish nor fowl thing where it wasn't like everyone was watching it at the same time and therefore discussing it. So it wasn't like a traditional HBO weekly rollout, but it also wasn't like a binge thing, even though people were watching it at their own pace. So the conversation became this staggered thing where People didn't know, you know, on a on a purely parochial level involving what we do for a living, people weren't sure when to roll out their postmortem coverage and their recaps. But I just don't think people knew. But when the same they thing were... happened with Dexter, though, with uh, Dexter New Blood. And, and I and I think that the show got less buzz than it would have otherwise. I think that I don't know that this is a successful rollout thing that Showtime is attempting to do. Showtime, however, has numbers on it and they know for sure if it is. And if it is, then by all means, I am completely wrong. I don't know. As Alan says we all exist in our bubbles and the bubbles are what they are. Um, but my perception was that the rollout messed with the way that people were talking about it. The people were either too nervous to talk about spoilers if they watched it on Friday or felt like they were three days late to the conversation if they watched it on Saturday. Or they just didn't watch it and checked out halfway through the season. I, or that, they're waiting I mean, to binge it all at the same time now that the full season's out. And I think that's I think that's absolutely possible. I think that could be the answer. Again, Showtime has numbers and they know if this was a sat if this has been a satisfactory strategy. It could be it could be that the the show in terms of just ratings and audience and streaming has been through the roof and we simply just don't know. So I, I don't know. We only have our perception of it. And my perception is that it, it just somehow not somehow it by as a result of the thing that we've talked about over and over again about everybody wanting all of their shows to end by May 31st for for Emmy purposes and that being the artificial deadline under which everything got squished in and suddenly if you look at what's premiering in June it is it is a borderline wasteland and that was just a choice people made uh yeah it just it just didn't feel like it it worked and it didn't feel like it benefited the show that I actually feel confident in that it didn't benefit the show, anything they did. All right. So let's wrap this very special critics central episode of TV's top five rate the finales guys, which episodes let's just focus just on the finale episodes. Succession, Barry, Ted Lasso, yellow jackets. Probably that though. I could be argued into making it succession yellow, not no succession, Ted Lasso, Barry, Yellow Jackets. Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident Succession is my favorite of them. I'm pretty confident that Yellow Jackets was my least favorite. I I could be argued into thinking that Ted Lasso, just because of all the feels, as it were, was more yeah. successful. I, I, I just think that the the Fuchs Noho Hank scene is the best. Like maybe the best scene of anything that was in any of those episodes, maybe even better than the three Roy's arguing in the little conference room. So that to me would put Barry second right there, even if I had issues with other stuff. Oh, I would, I would definitely disagree with that. I, I think probably, I think probably for me, the gap I think is, is fairly large between succession okay. and the other and the other three, I think, but. Yeah. Totally fair. <laughs> we we were waiting for you to rank them, uh, Leslie. Even if several of the rankings are, oh, you want I me didn't... to rank them? Yes, why not? Um, You're yes. Pretty, you... Well, I'm going to leave Barry out because I don't watch it, and I'm not going to, and I don't want to <laughs> judge something that I haven't seen. Um, <laughs> that's, that's very good. <laughs> See, base, you are base, a critic, Leslie. 
Yes. Ba- based purely on my personal taste, I would rather watch a show that leaves me feeling. I'm going to put Ted Lasso first because it gave me all of the feels and I love that. Succession was a fantastic ending. I absolutely loved it. I thought the characters got what they deserved and I found myself still thinking about it. But I'm going to rate Ted Lasso higher because it's just... Yeah, it made me cry, you know, and I'm going to miss that show and I'm going to miss what that show represented. You know, it, it came it, it in 2020. It was the right show at the right time. And I will forever cherish it for what it did for me in that time period. And Yellow Jackets obviously lasts, even though I still like the show, that soundtrack still, I'm still listening to, to Sharon Jones is 17. And that was from the season two premiere. So. You can, of course, read all of Alan's content over at Rolling Stone. Anything you want to plug, Alan? I mean, I do think that the Henry Winkler interview was fun, so definitely try to read that. And I like, I wish I was able to just post some of the audio from it because the last, the last thing Henry Winkler said to me will chill me to my bones for the rest of my days. <laughs> well, we thank you for joining us for this way extended conversation, Alan. Anytime, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Number five. More than a decade after it ended, ABC's Lost was back in the headlines this week after Maureen Ryan revealed in an excerpt from her forthcoming book, Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood, exposing the toxic creative environment that existed in the show's writer's room. Ryan, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, who formerly contributed reports of misconduct pertaining to showrunners on American Gods, Bull, and NCIS New Orleans for The Hollywood Reporter, joins us this week to discuss blending her previous reporting with a deep dive into the toxicity and prevailing myths that saturate the entertainment industry. The book comes out June 6th. Thanks so much for joining us, Mo. I am so happy to be here. I was looking forward to this a lot. (laughs) So... I I know how emotionally exhausting the past few years have been for people who are on what, for want of a better phrase, could be called the exposing bad men in power beat. And I I know particularly the exhaustion that you were feeling in, in 2018, 2019. When did you decide that there was a book in all of this? And more than that, when did you decide that you were prepared to take on the commitment and weight of doing that book? These are good questions that I've thought about many times and talked about with my therapist because, you know, being one of the most intelligent people in the world, I'm kidding, um, I decided in, you know, during a pandemic, like all these issues of toxicity, bias, abuse, and bullying, um, let's write a whole book about them. You know, smart, smart decision or smartest decision? Who can say? I 
But, you know, you guys were in the trenches with me. We talked a lot, you know, because we're, we know each other. We've known each other a long time. You know, we've worked together in various capacities. Um, so you, can, you know, you can forget you that it. American God story that we did together. Yeah. I, a high point to be able to share a byline with you. Um, and being it, called a, what, what, what did Neil Gaiman call us from the TCA <laughs> stage? Hysterical women, something like that. Anyway, I'm not I, going to comment at this time. <laughs> I gotta save something for my memoir, right? You know, I gotta save all the spicy bits for for the sequel. Um, I, I I was in those trenches for a long time. It was very very challenging because even now this seems never ending. You know, the lost story going online. My inbox once again, as it does probably with you, it filled up again with now do this show, now do this set, now do this workplace. And I'm like, I am one woman. You know, I wish I was Batman and I could clone myself and be like the multi-bot man, bat lady. I don't know. But I'm not. So it's just, it's never ending and it's very punishing and challenging. But to sort of take a bigger picture view, many people I know and respect, many of my friends have written books. And what I know from that is you have to believe in something really strongly because you'll be working on it very hard for a long time. So I was like, okay, when I settle on a book idea, I got to really believe in it. And around, I want to say 2020, 2021, especially the first half of 2021, I worked on a series of stories and, you know, apologies to men, I guess, but I kind of secretly call them bad man stories. <laughs> you know, like, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know, people of all genders can be terrible. Let's just state that at the outset. Um, but I was working, I worked on a series of, of bad man stories and they began, I began to feel like I was in a rerun, you know, just it, because the things that people were telling me were just so repetitive. Like we tried to do this and then the studio wouldn't do that and nobody listened. And then the HR and then like, it just felt like I was in this endless doom loop of the same stories being told over again. And I became convinced at a certain point that they all have a clubhouse and a handbook and like do like, cause this, the things that would happen that people would describe, I was like, wait, someone told me word for word this exact thing two years ago. What? This is like still going on? And so I became, you know, as I do, enraged. And <laughs> that carries me through a fair amount of what I do. Um, and I, I, I remember really distinctly in March of 2021 texting a friend a series of like burn it down rage texts. And then I looked at them, and then at the end of that text chain is me sort of saying in a very like lower pitch, "Oh, this is a this is a book proposal." You know, I, I ultimately was like, "Oh, this is I this is a bigger thing." And also, over time, as you probably noticed, and you know, Leslie, you've attempted to edit me from that from time to time. Like my stories kept getting longer because I do think context is important, and I do think that our all of us in the media. Many of us took on a second full-time job in terms of like reporting on misconduct in the industry. And we already, our, our, our first full-time jobs were pretty demanding. But many people have worked very, very hard to provide context, nuance, depth, responses. Where we really try to cover the waterfront when we embark on this reporting, as I know you both know very well. But I felt like with some stories, including Lost, um, including Sleepy Hollow, other other you know, endeavors, a Saturday Night Live, 
I really needed to be able to have room to stretch, you know, and really, really get into it. And even so, I I blew past what my the agreed upon word count for the book would be like by by a lot. And my editor, Rikia Clark, was great about it. She's been a rock throughout the whole thing. Um, so it was it was that that's that, that the early part of 2021. I thought I need to take a bigger picture of you, and also. I wonder if you agree with me, understandably to an extent, there are times when I feel like people are tired of the misconduct reporting, people are tired of the topic, and Lord knows, sometimes I'm tired of the topic too, like real tired. <laughs> so, I'm not, I'm not dismissing anyone, just kind of greeting yet another expose with like a deep sigh and a wish to take a nap. You know, I, I, and then you go, you take the nap and then you go read it. Um, so I just thought there are some deep dives that I want to do. I think it's time for me to take on writing a book, which is something I've always wanted to do. I did have some pretty clear cut ideas of things I wanted to delve into. And naively, I thought, well, maybe I have stuff in my notebook that I can kind of repurpose stuff that never made it into stories. And I did, you know, I did use some, um, some things from the, you know, the cutting room floor, so to speak. But I, I mainly, because I wanted to be as thorough as I could be once I got going, walking down those paths of those deeper dives into certain shows, I wanted to be thorough. I was terrified of not being thorough enough. And, and not just, I didn't want to get sued. That's a thing too. But like, I didn't want to feel like I'd left key context or key, key facts out. And, and, you know, Yes, I can write. I wrote a chapter about Saturday Night Live. That's a book about which many, many large tomes have been written. I don't, I'm not pretending in any case to have written that the definitive thing about that show for all time. It's more, here's a piece I can slice off that points to ongoing dynamics in the industry. This is the last chapter worked for the purposes I was trying to serve. Same with other chapters about other issues. And um, so, yeah, honing it down to the topics that I wanted to cover, diving deeply into those topics, fact-checking everything, um, rigorously editing and, and going over those things with the team at the publisher. Uh, it was all a lot more than I thought it would be, and, and rightly so. It should always be hard in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, it should be hard to... It, it's It's always hard to meld many different people's accounts, which sometimes vary from each other's accounts, it's hard to meld that into a readable narrative um, at any point. And so I did the equivalent of like taking on doing like eight Vanity Fair stories at once, which was, again, hugely smart decision. <laughs> I, I have no regrets. Um, it, it was hard. Um, yeah. But, you know, but in, in a larger sense, what do you hope the goal and resulting outcome of the book is? When I was pitching the book around to every single publishing entity, I said, this book will not just be Mo uncovers bad stuff. The last third of it will be suggestions from people in the trenches who are making it better, have made it better, and are providing better role models. So... I certainly have done my share to, in a weird way, like reinforce this idea that like, oh, there's only ever, maybe there's only ever toxicity. That's not true. I wanted to just really highlight people who 
maybe came from terrible work environments in many cases, and then went on to say, I'm not going to do that, and here's how I did it. Because I think, as, as you both know, mentorship, training, support, resources, and you know, all kinds of apprenticeships were never that easily obtained. All those things were never easily obtained for anyone in a management or leadership position in the industry. You know, whether you're the head of the camera department or the head of a major feature film, you typically did not or do not get the training or support that you need to be a good leader or the, you know, or you, and on top of that, you've seen a lot of bad examples, probably. So this is the dynamic that I'm hoping to unpack. And also, you know, in Hollywood, so much is about image management. And so there's this thing I call the performance of mastery. Everyone has to pretend they know what they're doing. They don't want to seem uncool. They don't want to seem incompetent. They don't want to not get the opportunity because they don't seem as experienced. So I do, again, this is an understandable thing, but how do we get from nobody gives you the training, mentorship, apprenticeship, or leadership advice that you need how, how do we get from that to, okay, but people are still being put in these jobs. How, how can I maybe in a small way realistically address the demands of the industry, the demands that are made upon them, and give them some pointers from other industry veterans who've been there and say, okay, I gave you a bunch of examples of what not to do. Here's, here's how people are tackling it. And it's, they're not only successful, they're respected, they win awards, they're, you know, they have the esteem of their colleagues across the industry. And, you know, being, being good leaders and being accountable did not wreck their careers. Yeah. I mean, there's programs that exist to help train. Mm -hmm. like there's a WGA showrunner training program and, you know, and there, every studio seems to have these and it's, you know, you hear from some sources that these are really just done as lip service. Then you hear from other people who are involved in the programs and they're like, oh, I learned a lot. This was I could never have actually become a showrunner had I not learned how to manage budget or how to, how to deal with difficult personalities, et cetera. You know, but, you know, looking at, at the lost chapter, obviously, which went viral after it was published this week. I'm curious, you know, for Damon, this was his first time show running. He came up on Nash Bridges, invited Carlton Cuse, who created the show, to help him on Lost. And these were relatively, you know, he was a first time showrunner, and Carlton here is a veteran here. But to me, after reading these, and these are two extremely well respected and well regarded showrunners in, in the industry who have gone on to do great things and be very, very successful. But how do you think these revelations about the toxicity in that lost writer's room that they oversaw impacts their careers going forward? And is there anything to learn going forward by drudging up everything that, that happened in the past? Obviously, it has a value for the people who can actually talk about it and bring this to light for the first time. That That's obviously part of this. But but for people like Damon and Carlton, and, and not to put them in the bad men category, but neither one of them comes off very well in, in that chapter, but... I'm rambling here, but you get the idea. Like, how does this affect them going forward and what can be learned for the next generation? Absolutely. I mean, a very fair comment that you can make about some of the stuff I write about in the book, like why write about Sleepy Hollow? It ended six years, seven years ago, something like that. Uh, why write about Lost? It ended a decade ago. Why, why dredge up, you know, things that may have happened on a hit ABC comedy, you know, a while back? And it's because... 
those people are still working now, you know, like they're not, most of the people and most of the, you know, projects that, are, that I touch on in my book or even in my previous reporting, a lot of those people are still in the industry. I, it's not like, you know, there was a mass, you know, <laughs> to, speak, to refer to the leftovers, there was not a mass, um, you know, disappearance of, of people. So I think there is value in asking those people what they would, you know, what they would have done differently, what they wish had gone differently, what they, what they wish they'd known. And, you know, in the book version of the Lost chapter, I go into the Friends lawsuit, which is a very, very iconic moment in Hollywood history, not a good one, in my view, um, and how it has been misused and even distorted. And even if you read the legal reading itself, it's been, you know, it was pretzeled for a long time into let's give everybody a free pass in a writer's room, which, you know, the predictable results of that are are terrible. Um, I think there's value in this. There's, you know, there's value in dredging it up because the people who were harmed are still in the industry. We should talk about what does a reckoning look like. There's a, a whole chapter in my book where I talk to a rabbi, a criminal justice expert, and a person who's been through a restorative justice, pro justice process and is now a screenwriter in Hollywood, I talk to them about what does atonement look like? What does, where does forgiveness come in that cycle? What does it take for forgiveness to stick, so to speak, or to be a real thing? What else has to be on the table? Um, you know, not, I'm going to take six months off and talk to, um, a life coach like that, like what, what's, what are real concrete steps that people can take to atone? And so, I mean, the fact of the matter is this, a lot of people then or now would kill to have Damon Lindelof's career. He's had a very illustrious career. And if it, if, if seeing him grapple with seeing the words seeing him grapple with these things, seeing Carlton Cuse and what he said in response to these reporting revelations, if seeing these people who are in that top echelon of the industry grapple with what they did and why they did it, I think that can be a, a valuable thing for people coming up now because it frankly just provides another example. You know, there aren't, there aren't enough good examples of okay, terrible revelations came out, now what? You know, there, there have been, obviously, people who were covered, their misdeeds were made public, and then kind of they scurry away or they get themselves into <laughs> a deeper hole with sometimes things that they say. But I really wanted to provide a place where I, as someone who was a fan of Lost, talked to them about what I found and they were allowed to respond, and it's awkward, and it's painful, and it's difficult, and maybe it's re-traumatizing for some people, but I think that I got so much response yesterday that was heartening and beautiful, and really showed that people were grappling with these ideas, and that to me is the heartening thing. Not that, okay, lost is done, we close the book on that, we're never talking about it again. It's not done. I think in a way, a lot, the book is meant to kick open the door on some discussions that need to have. But I have to bring up a really funny comment that somebody said, that this Vanity Fair piece, you know, the excerpt from my book on lost, was a trashy cash grab. And I was like, you nailed it, absolutely. Twitter gonna Twitter. I love this. No notes. And I'm like, no. I mean, honestly, when I got done laughing, I'm like, 
frankly, this is the opposite of a trashy cash grab. With every chapter in my book, there's a version of this that is an 800-word hit piece. There is. But I don't know that that's valuable. You know, I'm actually going to be on a panel. Dan, I'm going to hopefully get some huevos and churros with you when we're both down at ATX at the ATX TV Festival, which we love, I love. Um, I'm going to be on a panel with um, Javi uh, Grigio Markswatch and Melinda Shue Taylor, who are both quoted in that chapter. And I will just give you a little heads up. Like, none of us are interested in making that an ad hominem beat down of anyone. I mean, if I'm honest, let that like, let, yes, let's talk about it. But I think, I think the easy thing to do is just to say, and in, in this, this applies to many conversations, the easy thing to say is, well, bad things happened on that set or in, at, that, at that show or at that production office or at that network. And we close the book on that and we will never speak of that again. I don't know that that's helpful. We need to talk about it. We need to have productive, proactive conversations about what realistic limits on behavior and conduct and management should be. And that's the real thing that I hope people, you know, the, the book chapter on Lost goes into this more deeply. What were employees supposed to do then and what are they supposed to do now and how much has changed? Right. And I mean, and looking at the way that Damon and Carlton responded, both were very, had very different responses. Carlton was, you know, through, I think it was a, what'd you say? It was a spokesperson or an attorney saying no recollection, basically no comment. And Damon was like, I don't remember this, but if I did this, I'm hugely sorry type thing. But uh, what kind of a larger impact do you think this has on their respective careers? You know, I've got, I've got, been asked that so much for the past since I be, I've been doing this loss reporting honestly for like three years, four years, something like that. Like I, I really think that um, as certain people who work there ascended in the industry, they began to become uncomfortable with the cone of silence around what occurred, and so I've been asked many times in the last couple of years. What will happen what, to Damon? What will happen to Carlton? And, and what I always say, my standard response is, I'm absolutely not in charge of that. I'm not. They are in charge of the choices they made in the past and in the present. And I don't hand out overall deals, which obviously are in a weird spot now, given the strike. But I don't I don't hand out multi-million dollar contracts. I mean, I wish, but I don't. I don't give people really big job opportunities to be a showrunner, to be a, you know, to write a script for a major picture. You know, all of these things are not like my purview. What happens to them depends on the communities that they're part of. The creative community, the writing community, the Hollywood top tier echelons and all that. Like they are part of a number of different communities. And, and I'm just, a girl standing in front of an industry asking it, you know, not to be terrible. I'm just one person. And what I feel very deeply is that many, many people came forward to me and we talk, I talked to them for years because they were nervous. You know, in many cases, months, years, every single person for Lost I talked to multiple times, many times, because it was complicated for them. You know, it, it still is. Um, so those people, that's a community too. 
a lot of what happens next, I think, depends on them and what they feel and what they want. And that's hopefully a thing I'll talk about uh, with Melinda and Javi. But I, I think that as we go forward, I would love for the conversations to be, let's open the door for more people from loss to talk about their experiences, good or bad. I don't think that everything that came from Lost was bad. I, I loved the show at the time, and I think it did a lot of good work. And a lot of people did a lot of good work. Um, and sometimes the conditions under which they did it were not great. Um, so, so the communities of the creative communities, the Lost community, the, um, their peers now, and the people who write the big checks, those are the people who determine what happens to their reputations. And I just honestly feel really honored that people trusted me. And of all the stories I've ever written that take on uh, bad workplaces, this is the one where the most people use their names, I think. Yeah. And, we'll, and we'll get... And we'll get into that, you know, people who are still unwilling to talk mm. on record or even on oh, background. But we'll get into that later. Ended up but in my inbox today, I seem imagine a little more so. willing now. Yeah, I mean that always happens when you know when as soon as as soon as you get one, usually you wind up getting more. But before we get onto that, you know, uh, you, know you mentioned a couple other shows here: Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. uh, Sleepy Hollow. What else did you uncover beyond Lost that that really surprised you? I mean, there's been whispers around things that that happened on Sleepy Hollow, you know, for for a long time. But what surprised you that from, you know, what other things that did you touch on in in, in terms of what shows and productions, et cetera? Yeah, in terms of like Mo screaming, burn it down into the void, um, Sleepy Hollow was a chapter that caused me to do that many times. And people ask me what I did as like stress relief. And I'm like, well, I do a lot of rage landscaping. You know, I don't know, pound this garden steak with a mallet and maybe pound it a little farther into the ground than I wanted to. <laughs> um, what I found out about Sleepy Hollow was genuinely shocking to me. Um, but some of some of what I knew, you know, as you will find out when you read it, some of it happened to me directly. You know, there was there's there's a little part where I have a walk on part, and I didn't I didn't fully understand what was happening at the time, but I had to put in my own experience to kind of contextualize one piece of it. And um, that was really, really tough. Um, I did follow-up reporting on Jeff Garland because I did that big piece in um, Vanity Fair, the, the Q&A with him, where I give him credit for being willing to talk to me for almost two hours. At the same time, if you read the interview, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to process. <laughs> and It's a lot to process. I would like to just inform the public when a journalist says that, that means that their brain is exploding and it's melting out their ears. So um, I that that piece went live and immediately like my inbox filled up with accounts from crew, from people like from people who worked with Garland who were like, well, okay, this isn't my experience and I would like to clarify that. And I was there for this. Um, so there was more of that. Um, I think one of the things that's threaded through the book that surprised me the most is the number of time, the number of times that people who do PR for very large industry companies simply did not respond to my questions at all. Like not even the, not even the grace or the the favor of a no comment. I did ask a series of questions about SNL, including a very high profile lawsuit that was settled last fall, and there are some revelations that I have about that in the book. And I emailed, you know, many people at NBC Universal and that whole world. 
I, I did get the favor of a no comment from someone high up in comms. So, you know, that was exciting. But for other situations, a theme that you will see running throughout the book is no one replied to my emails. No one answered me. No, nobody wanted to address this. And there was one situation in particular where I was like, okay, there have been problematic showrunners at this high-profile high piece of IP uh, that is still around, is still kicking, and still going you know, into many different iterations. I asked questions not about just perhaps some problematic sh people that were employed by that world, but what, what are you doing now to make sure that all of your workplaces are, that the staff feel sufficiently protected if they come forward and that they will not face retribution or career-ending problems or just simple trauma if if they report something that's wrong. Like I just I wanted to address okay, not just these people, not this these, these questions about these particular you know high-level millionaires, but also what are you doing to make sure workplaces are safe, respectful, professional, and and adequately protect workers? Maybe could you just address that piece of it? Nothing crickets. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned SNL. Was this the Horatio Sands lawsuit? And some of these other shows, Sleepy Hollow, what what did you uncover there? I don't, there's so many things I could say. And, you know, yesterday when the Lost Piece went live, I also, you know, hinted at like the Sleepy Hollows in the book. And various people were like, oh gosh, what's there? I'm going to be totally frank with you. It's It's such a, it's so big and there are so many appalling pieces of it that I just... I don't even know how to explain it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't even know what to tell you, but um, if you are ever wondering if um, Orlando would talk to a book author, Orlando Jones would talk to the author of a book about the entertainment industry, uh, I can answer that in the affirmative. He is a voice throughout my book, not just in the sleepy chapter, but, you know, like Orlando has been in a show you might have heard of, Leslie, called American Gods. Oh, yeah. Not sure if you're familiar. Orlando Jones has like a million credits in this industry as a writer, a producer, an actor. He's gone to many fan conventions. He's He owns a social media and marketing and, and advertising companies. He knows the industry every which way from Sunday. So um, connecting with him was a really big part of that chapter. There are many other sources for the Sleepy Chapter. Um, it had two showrunners. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that um, both of them, there were problems in their tenures, to, to put it mildly. But there were a lot of problems. And actually, the reason the Sleepy Chapter is so long, look, television is a difficult, difficult beast to tame, and many things went wrong. Not everything that happened at Sleepy Hollow was the result of bad intent. It was like behind the scenes, a lot of things were difficult and those difficulties compounded each other and they compounded over time. But what I will say is that I feel personally, I'm just going to speak for myself, I feel awful about what occurred and I feel that if anything in my book gives necessary and important context to the trajectory of Nicole Bahari's career, I will have done something maybe worthwhile. I, I don't know. That's not for me to judge. It's for, you know, anyone who reads the book to judge. But I'm going to speak in a generality here, but you both know what I'm talking about. Sometimes things are said about people in an attempt to destroy their careers. And, you know, as journalists, we hear a lot of things. We hear a lot of things. And 
So I bring a journalist's wariness to what I hear. You know, I like if I hear it enough times, I'm like, hmm, there might be something there. If I hear it from people I trust, you know, there's a lot that gets said about people. Um, but the viciousness with which certain rumors can be deployed, and it's not, and it's not just on one show or one set or one film. It happens a lot. And I, if there's, if there's a thing that causes me to want to burn things down, it's when people leave the industry or are essentially forced out of the industry or forced into essentially career hiatuses, not due to a pattern of serious misconduct or serious unprofessionalism or serious transgressions of any kind, but because they feared for their mental health, their physical well-being, their safety, and their overall quality of life was terrible. So, that is something that I feel really strongly about and I've written about a lot. Um, a number of sources in the book and in my previous reporting are people who are like, who pieced out of the industry because they were like, nope, I'm out, can't do it. And not because they were a bad actor, a bad writer, a bad, you know, bad at their whatever they were doing, um, but because they tried to break in. It's hard to break in. I think it's almost harder to stay in now. And um, they did not feel safe. They did not feel respected, and they made other choices to preserve their sanity and their and their bodies and careers. And I, I respect that. So I imagine that on a book like this, the process of lawyering the book could have made <laughs> could have made for an entire book all itself. Any any juicy tidbits that you want to share with us about how this was actually able to be published, thanks to the legal people? Oh boy, Dan. You're the best, and I think you're great, and you just brought up the, you just opened the whole can-o legal worms. Yes, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm allowed to say. I will say this, when you read the book, when you read anything I've written, you know, for Leslie, for Vanity Fair, for Salon, anybody, New York Times, a lot of other eyes were on it. A lot of other eyes were on it, and um, I value that. I genuinely value that. I told the lawyer for this book that I like, you know, I, I many times I, I complimented her professionalism and her demeanor and we got along great. And I would say to her constantly, I'm really glad that I like you because I don't like this part of it. It's like, it's very, it's painful. Um, it, 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 I mean, okay, let me, let me qualify that word painful or maybe substitute better words. It's challenging. Because you do the work and then some people come along and say, do it again or do more of this or do less of that. And, you know, I'm the one on the trenches talking to sources, talking to people. It's, you know, that's, that's, I'm honored to do that, but it's really, it's very time consuming and, and, and can be draining work. So to have to, you know, redo stuff or go back to people or whatever, you know, I, I was up. I will give you a fun legal tidbit. Um, someone who I reached out to and, last summer, a year ago or more, um, decided to get back to me around Christmas time. So the book was supposed to be done. <laughs> and so I had some fun interchanges with PR people and lawyers over, you know, Christmas Eve and, you know, that week between Christmas and, Christmas and New Year's. Um, and that was a lot, you know, but we changed the book. We changed the book and we 
got back into the text and, and made some revisions, which I'm glad of about, you know, because the, full, the fullest picture is the one that serves the reader best. Um, but, and I will say this, not just about the book. Again, I'm going to speak in generality, Mo Ryan, not trying to get sued here. Um, what I have found, and I touch on this in the, in the latter parts of the book, when people who have a lot of money and power feel rattled, what they often do is not just hire people to rattle the cages of the people that they think are treating them unfairly or badly or being bad at their jobs. They also essentially like try to go up the ladder and make sure that anyone in your sort of command structure over your journalism or your criticism like gets gets an earful, so to speak. And I've, I've endured a lot of that in my career. And I would love to be like, I'm cool. I'm Batman. Is that a good Batman? It's not. Um, I'm sorry. I'm trying to do like a like a like some kind of deep-voiced Batman. I'm very bad at it. But I'd like to be able to say I'm a cool superhero who is like, yeah, bring it on. It's it The stuff that folks do, and I understand the response to some extent, but the, the stuff that ends up happening is meant to throw you off your game. It's meant to rattle you. It's meant to rattle the people you're working with and the persistence of it. And sometimes the, you know, quite often people impugn me and impugn my reporting and impugn my working style and impugn my sources. And I'm Irish, you know? I uh, I try to keep it profesh. I do. I really do. But it's with you know, the bigger the project, the more blowback you're going to get like that, and that can get tiring. Well, along those lines, and just sort of as a as a last question, though we could surely talk to you <laughs> all day and probably for weeks, uh, you write fairly early in the book. You say that, quote, a sizable chunk of the worst stuff I know about the industry remains inside my brain unpublished. I I'm curious, how do you cope with that, do you cope with it by imagining a sequel, or do you cope with it by imagining a book that somebody entirely separate from you will write someday that you won't need to obsess about? I envisioned this book as one last job and then I get out. <laughs> and as I know from popular culture, that always goes well, and there are never, ever any unfortunate developments when someone decides to do one last job and then be done. Um, so I felt good about that. I felt good about the choice and that it would work out great. Uh, you know, I do a lot of, as I said in the book, journalism triage. I do talk to people off the record and with it way off the record many times to just, and I think we all do this, like, how would it work? What would I need to do? How, you know, do I feel comfortable moving forward? And I really, I try to make the sources that I work with feel that they have, that I respect them as people. I respect their choices around their mental health, their physical health, their safety, their career. I counsel them. I don't tell them what to do. I don't tell them, use your name or don't. Um, I We just talk together about how it would work. And what what do I do with that information? I don't, I don't know, Dan. Uh, therapy, you know, just a whole ton of therapy. And um, I guess I'll just, this is a good note to leave it on. I could do kind of a super villain monologue and say, a lot of people better hope that stuff stays in my brain, but it might not. 
<laughs> well, a good note to end on. <laughs> burn it down. <laughs> burn it down hits shelves on June 6th and is currently available for pre-order at all of your finest book retailers. Thank you so much for joining us, Mo. Thank you, my friends. I love seeing your faces. The re- listeners cannot, but I am happy to talk with you and see you. Thank you so much. Once again, if you missed Critics Corner this week, be sure to check out Dan's weekly Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. Those suckers do help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. We're always happy to get your feedback. Uh, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, we had a double mailbag segment last week, and... Who knows when we'll next need one again, but we always like your questions. You can email us at tbstop5 at thr.com. That's tbstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.